Hi, I'm Jennifer Ackerman Haywood, and you're listening to the Craft Sanity Podcast, an interview show all about art, craft, and creativity. Well, if you couldn't express yourself, how would you de-stress yourself? And if you couldn't make and build and sing, and knit and paint and dance and spin, would you go crazy? Well, if you're going crazy... Hello and welcome to episode 223 of the Craft Sanity Podcast. On this episode, I'm going to bring you a conversation with Diana Waymar. She's the creator and curator of the Tiny Pricks Project. It's a public art project that is featuring hundreds of vintage linens that are embroidered with Trump quotes. The installation is on display in New York right now. If this presidency has been particularly challenging for you, I think this is an episode for you. If you're really enjoying this presidency and uh, love the Twitter feed, this is also an episode for you because one of the things that Diana did tell me during our chat is that her project is open to everyone. It's a collection of Trump quotes, but it is not something that is only for people who are not fans of the guy. So I recommend that you go pour yourself a cup of tea or your other beverage of choice, grab a project, perhaps that might be some embroidery, and settle in for my conversation with Diana. Diana, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I am a fan of your project, the Tiny Pricks Project, and I would love for you to explain to the listeners what this is all about and what inspired it. Yeah, happy to do that. Um, The project began somewhat um, unintentionally January 10th or so, 2018. I had a textile and stitching-based project uh, that I had been doing for a couple of years called Interwoven Stories. And it's an international project in which people are invited to stitch a personal memory um, into a piece of what looks like fabric three-hole line paper that you would get it in the class or buy for back to, with back-to-school supplies. And so Interwoven Stories started at the Arts Council of Princeton, and over 170 pages have been created there. And each page is donated back to the project. So I had this two-year experience of doing Interwoven Stories internationally, but I was not focused on the Trump presidency at that point until he said, I'm a very stable genius, and um, I didn't know how to process very simple words, very complicated concept, because that was before we, I had formed a kind of, um, before I had gotten past the knee-jerk reaction and disappointment um, when he was elected, and so I didn't know how to really follow his tweets, his words, I couldn't stand to listen to him, I couldn't stand to watch him, and was still trying to get out of this place of, of disappointment. And when he said, I'm a very stable genius, it was like a lightning bolt hit me. And so I had a short car ride from New Jersey into New York. My husband was driving, and I took this, what I consider sort of an unattractive, needlepoint seat cushion that someone in my maternal family had made and I had inherited. And I stitched in bright yellow floss across the top of it, um, 
I am a very stable genius. And I guess I wanted to just focus on those world words because it hadn't occurred to me that Trump was a genius um, or that he was a stable genius or that he was a very stable genius. And so to qualify what kind of genius you are is some kind of genius because at that point, you know, we think, well, maybe he is a genius. Um, but when I stitched it and I photographed it and posted it on Instagram, there was an immediate response to it. And so I thought, well, this is, you know, I could make this a practice for his presidency. Once a week, he'll say something that's worth stitching, and I will stitch it. And at the end of his presidency, I'll have an interesting collection of um, stitched Trump quotes on vintage textile, and maybe I'll do something with it, a kind of um, nostalgic look back at what he had said, um, but really sort of episodic. I also thought that the things that he would say would change and he would sort of veer more to the center. He'd be less outrageous, less offensive, more careful with his language. And of course, as we know, none of that happened. So as you can see, it began, I was incredibly naive. You sounded very optimistic too. <laughs> optimistic and naive. So uh, those go hand in hand. Um, but I thought it would be a small project. I thought I would do it alone, and I thought it would be like a kind of pop culture wink nudge um, looking at this sort of outrageous character with nostalgic memory textiles. Um, so I started following his Twitter account, and, you know, I went from, you know, thinking that he would say one thing a week to one thing an hour, you know, three months into it. Mm-hmm. I couldn't believe the things that he was saying. And so to get over my disbelief, I stitched them and I posted them. And the response was always extremely positive. Uh, I think at that point I had maybe 300 followers on Instagram. But I knew that there was something there. And that summer, a group of friends um, asked me if they could hold a workshop and if I would show them how to make a tiny prick. And of course, because I'd done the other project, I knew that there can be a wonderful community that forms around stitching and especially picking it up for the first time or picking it up again and doing something different with your hands when you're meeting socially, when you're gathering. And so we had two workshops that summer, and I think about 20 pieces came out of the workshops, and I kept making my pieces and in that fall in September, the project was at New York Textile Month. And I did awesome. workshops. And it's just, and just to say that it's grown enormously since then, obviously. But every step um, goes back to the same idea. Um, everyone is trying to process these words. And if you make them by hand and you share them, there's an opportunity for a different dialogue. Do you find the stitching's helping you process? All those tweets? Because there are just so many. Yeah, so I think it's it's helping me participate in the conversation. And one of the things that I think you gain by using his words and applying the time and labor to them is that it gives you sort of like a press credential to say, I read what he said, I wrote it out, I stitched it, and I care. And I've, I consider it a sort of way of showing up, um, and it gives you something to do so that you're not standing there. And there's nothing wrong with retweeting and resharing, but this is this is a little bit above and beyond. It's you've made the cake, you've you know right. made the birthday card, you've you've stitched 
the tweet. And I think that that applied effort is appreciated by people, and they appreciate that you've then interpreted it because you're making so many small decisions. What textile to use, what color thread to use, and I think it's really inspiring. Um, so I feel that what helps me process um, this presidency is paying attention to his words, but also finding myself in a community that is extremely positive for people who are finding this, the Trump era, as he's just, he's named it, uh, very difficult. And so it helps me process because they're also holding this space and they're holding it in a positive way, even though they're outraged, which is a really complicated thing to do. It's like you're marching and you're singing, right? And so it feels good. And that that just gives me the the available energy to process and listen and not, you know, want to climb back into bed. Um, how long would you say you typically spend? I know the quotes vary in length, yeah. but how long do you spend with these uh, words before you're done with each piece? Well, I'm spending and I'm spending time with them in so many different ways because I'm processing and photo photographing and documenting mm-hmm. other people's pieces. But for my own, I try to make one a day, and I will. It's like making dinner, you know, you decide how much time do I have? <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Be, you know, am I going to start from scratch or am I going to go by the store and buy something quick? So there's sort of a fast food version of Tiny Pricks where you, um, like boring would be um, Trump's reaction to watching the, uh, the debates. Yeah. To bat- battle it mm-hmm. out, um, which it was anything but boring. Um, but then again, you know, that might be for a very stable genius, hard to watch. Um, but anyway, that's a very short quote, and so it can be done very quickly. I have learned to not speed stitch, but I've noticed that um, other people who are making one piece or one piece a week or one piece a month um, can spend more time on it. And my pieces are coming out. I try to get a piece out daily. So the pieces I create are almost the um, like a daily news bulletin. They're um, happening almost in real time. And then the pieces that are being sent in go back um, days, weeks, months, years, or decades. Um, and so it's this, this kind of dance between these two different feeds that creates and connects what he's saying now to what he's said in the past. So I tell people if you have, to, if you know, as long as you're not driving, you can probably stitch. So I stitch in a lot of places um, just to squeeze in that time to make them. And so where, for instance, where have you worked on a piece maybe most recently that people might not expect to see a woman stitching? <laughs> well, they don't, most places they don't expect to see um, anyone stitching, but in airports. So I'll be sitting at the gate and I'll be the only one stitching and everyone else will be holding their phones. Um, so everyone's holding something and doing something. And um, I, so I stitch a lot when I fly. I take a little dental floss container to cut my thread. And so that it's also a great way to have a conversation with people around you because they Sooner or later, they're too curious. They want to know what you're doing. Um, I've stitched while watching movies with my family, and uh, they once made me wear a headlamp because they wanted the lights off. (laughs) (laughs) I was wearing a headlamp while stitching. Um, I will stitch, you know, if someone else is driving. Um, Whenever I have, you know, waiting for an appointment, sometimes during phone calls, I'm not stitching now, but, but often I'll be. So 
I think I put down my phone more than I used to, and I pick up, you know, my stitching, and I make the piece um, as, as I'm present with other people. I'm definitely not afraid to do it in public, but you do draw attention. You do. And what do people say? Do people ask you what you're, when you tell them what you're doing? How do people react? <laughs> Most people are really excited um, and positive and enthusiastic. And every now and then I will meet someone who is a Trump supporter and will have a discussion about his words. And they always agree that they don't like what he says, um, but they like some of the things that he's doing. So it's, always an extremely positive response. And often people will start following the account and then they'll contact me later about making a piece. It is really a wonderful way to start talking to people without going being too direct. Because again, I'm not doing um, cartoon figures of Donald Trump. I'm not focusing so much on how he looks, though that always somehow comes into it in different ways. But I'm really focusing on the words. And so they can't we, we can agree that he has said this thing. And that just that little bit of common ground, we can agree that he said this. We can agree that he tweeted this. Going back to your point about journalism, you know, we need to agree on the very, very basics. And then the rest is part of the conversation. Right. And up for interpretation. Exactly. It's much easier to have a conversation, ironically, when you're sitting and stitching his words than if you just, you know, show someone your phone and say, here, you know, he said this. It's less confrontational. And because the medium is quiet and slow, it draws out, I think, a different, sets a different tone for the conversation. It's just such a interesting time to be alive <laughs> right now <laughs> with this, this um, Twitter and how it's played such a, a huge role in the current presidency. And it's permanent, but it also, it's direct and immediate, but it's not permanent. That's a, I mean, that was one of the reasons I felt that um, stitching, I, I always thought that he would start deleting tweets. I always thought that they would be removed. Um, you know, he makes a typo, Prince of Wales with an H, it's easy to remove that H. Right. So there is this, a bit of a sense that it's, um, by stitching it, you are creating a more permanent record uh, because it's much harder to change um, the stitches than it is to change a tweet. Do you screenshot the tweets as reference? So many other people do on Twitter that I generally don't um, because I know that somebody else is. Um, okay. Only every now and then have I read it and it's immediately been changed. And then I have a sort of twilight zone moment and think, did I really read that? Did he, it's, uh, and other people comment that it's often difficult when stitching a piece with a typo uh, or a grammatical error, which happens frequently. It's hard for them to follow through with the piece. <laughs> They're tempted to correct it in the stitches. Do you feel like you're better equipped to process all these things that have happened and continue to happen because you have that daily practice of, of stitching and processing and then moving on to the next thing? That is a really complicated question. I think it's helping. Well, it brings a lot of joy. The, there's there the tiny pricks and then there's the community around it and there's the methodology of the project. So I think I would feel more lonely during these times without this project. I would stay within my relatively small bubble 
and I feel like I have been given um, an opportunity to meet new people, to interact with them, to see their work, to be part of a conversation, even talking to you about what I'm doing, and in a way that I feel comfortable, so I don't feel like I'm overreaching my area of expertise. I feel like it's given me a very clear purpose and mission during this time period. I have no idea how to really process this presidency, and I don't think I'll know until five or ten years from now, when or longer, when we see what the real impact is. Um, I think this is, you know, this is the first dart, and the second dart comes, you know, in the decades to follow. So to process this is, to me, always suggests a real passage of time. And um, I'm almost, in a sense, slowing down time by stitching his words and slowing it down to stay present along, long enough to hear these words so that when I do really process what's happened politically and what his presidency has meant, um, I will have a reference point. I will have heard these different things, although it is, I have to admit, even now hard to keep up, hard to follow, even though I'm imprinting them by hand um, into textile, I will forget that he said something. Um, but I, I think the, the most amazing thing to come out of this project for me right now is that people come forward and people interact and they make these amazing pieces, every single one, and they donate it to a project so that other people can appreciate and see their work. And I don't know if that helps you process um, something as difficult as Trump's presidency, but it definitely makes it easier to be in a position to process. After you stitch your quote for the day, do you then maybe switch over to a project to kind of cleanse your palate a little bit or just give yourself a breather? Uh, No, I don't. I, I do commissions and I do other work to support my practice because the Tiny Fricks pieces are not for sale. And it's a strange thing to make so many pieces. I've made over 400 and them not be available right, for right. sale. So I do, um, I take a break by making other pieces, whether I do customized Tiny Pricks commissions and I do other pieces. So I switch to that. But honestly, I will make a piece and I'll post it and it's just so wonderful to see people follow it and like it and comment. And so that immediately makes me feel sort of better. And then I go out and pick up the mail, and there are anywhere from two to eight packages in the mail. And who gets mail anymore, really? Like, really, I know. It doesn't come from Amazon Prime. Right. Uh, it, it is like Christmas uh, or my birthday, and it's wonderful. So the nice thing about it is that this project has so many different aspects to it. So if stitching a piece gives me just kind of like, ugh, you know, why am I, why am I spending my time this way? Why am I spending my time with these words? Um, I immediately can go to a very positive experience of seeing other people's work, opening up their packages, looking at what they've done. So it very quickly transforms itself into positive energy whenever there's negative energy. It has so many different aspects to it because it's such a dynamic community of people. And, and let's talk a little bit more about that community, because right now there's a show going on currently, correct, in New York? Yes. 
there's an incredible um, space. Uh, I partnered about a month and a half ago with Linga Franca, and they, um, Rochelle and I found each other on Instagram, and she had made the I Miss Barack sweaters, and we immediately sort of recognized our kinship, and I had was just finishing a show in San Francisco of Tiny Pricks, and she said, I have a space, and we would love to put up as many pieces as we can. So the entire store is retrofitted with Tiny Pricks. Wow. Which is like, if I had to imagine what a um, three-dimensional Twitter feed would feel like, it would be a little bit like this, walking in a room with all of these words and pieces all around you, except that maybe the, the walls would collapse in. <laughs> or it would become like the escape room. You'd have to stitch your way out of the room. But um, it's amazing to see them up. And, it, and they came up with an incredible window display on Bleecker, um, where if you're sitting inside the store, you can look out through this cutout square space in the window, and you can see people walk by, stop, look, read, point, uh, take photos, and you get to watch people experiencing the quotes again. I think there are about 40 in the window. Wow, that's cool. So it's very cool. Um, and they don't realize they're being watched because it doesn't occur to them to look all the way through into the store. They're just immediately interacting with the pieces. And uh, it's really wonderful to watch people. You can see there on their faces the recognition. They may read the first piece and not know that something Donald Trump said, unless they really, they're, I mean, unless it's the witch hunt piece, for example. But to see them explore these words and these pieces when they don't know that, you know, they're being watched and they're free to sort of have the reaction that they have. It sounds like for you, connecting with community has been one of the best things. And have, do you have any people that are uh, your regulars where you go to the mailbox and you, you're like, oh, yeah, okay, here's another one from this particular person who submitted a bunch of things. Are there people that doing multiples? I do. It's not, you know, it's not quite like Cheers where there's a bar and they come with their <laughs> That would be cool. Where everybody knows their stitches. But there have been participants. Um, I have, and I, I say friends because some of them started as friends before this project. And I think we've become even closer friends um, who have made um, more than 20 pieces. Uh, you either get a little bit addicted to it or um, you do it and you're like, wow, I did that. And, uh, <laughs> I'm going to follow it, but I may not make another piece. But there are a handful of people who make a lot of pieces. And that's um, really enjoyable to see their work, to see their development. Because I'm not an expert um, embroiderer by any stretch of the imagination, I am really focused on making the words with the skills that I have at this moment. So when people participate who have a lot more experience than I have, it's really exciting to see what they're doing. So I'm still learning a lot, and I learn a lot from participants who make a lot of different pieces because I can talk with them about their progress and they're curating their own small collection within the series and deciding what is important and what else they feel that they need to say about what he said. So those conversations are really interesting, but I'm also incredibly inspired by people who don't stitch and probably won't stitch again and come to it with completely open minds and open hearts and are willing to sit down and do something they've never done before 
that's going to be shared publicly with their name on it, which is an incredible thing to do. You know, I wouldn't step out in the middle of a tennis court, in the middle of a match, and start <laughs> playing. Yeah, I probably and, wouldn't do that either. No. Yeah, no. And but but you see, it doesn't matter. It really that is not the point. In fact, when you see the effort of a first-time stitcher, you can feel. Uh, it reflects the struggle that one feels when reading the words. It all makes sense, and you can sometimes look at the pieces and look at them as a piece of art, not just uh, text. So looking at, um, I had a discussion with someone at the workshop last night, was it important for her words to be legible? What if you couldn't read the words, but you could only read some of the words? What does that say? And sometimes uh, participants create an entirely new font, that is very um, difficult to read, especially around words like drain the swamp and witch hunt, which have a very dramatic sort of uh, visual aspect and meaning. Well, could you talk a little bit about the criteria? So if someone's listening and they're like, man, this is this sounds great. I want to get involved in this. What are you asking people to do? I'm asking people to personalize the methodology if they feel comfortable doing that. So I think the first thing that I'm asking is, is for people to decide where they're at and what they would like to do, how they'd like to approach the project. I often suggest that people look at the Instagram feed and see my feed and see what people have done, not because that's they should make their piece in the same way, but because it gives it a context and a history, and you can see how different each of the pieces are. Uh, I think sometimes when we think of embroidery or stitching or craft-based projects, we expect that we're going to get a kit, and that, and we may all make a different um, framed piece, uh, but generally we're all sort of approaching it the same way. And this project can give you you can approach it in a very individual way, or you can look at the way the other pieces have been made and say, I basically want to do a piece just like that. So once people have looked at it and they have a sense of what it's like, uh, they usually start with a quote. And on the Tiny Pricks Project website, I give some information about how the most frequently asked questions, some of the challenges that that might come up with the materials, uh, what happens to it after you make it. But generally, um, people start with a quote, they find a textile, they go into a thrift store, or they have a drawer full of textiles that they've inherited, and then they they make the piece, they map it out, they take a photo of it and send it to me and say, you know, where's your, what's your address, what's the best address to send it to, because I am either in Canada or the States, and depending on where the exhibit is, the piece can sometimes be sent directly to the exhibit. And then there's also the element of documentation. So is there something more that you want to say? Often a quote is so long that um, people don't feel like they can provide all the context in their stitch piece, but there's context that goes into the documentation of the piece. So generally with each participant, I might exchange you know, anywhere from one to ten emails talking about their piece. Uh, do they have a title for it? And so there's... It's like a tiny exhibit of each piece. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and sometimes people just drop off their work and they're gone and there isn't a further conversation that's required to post a piece. And sometimes it's a more involved process. So anyone can join the project. Um, and that, you know, a Trump supporter, absolutely anyone can join the project. I, I haven't turned down a piece yet. 
or turned away a piece. Have you had any Trump supporters uh, participate that actually told you? Because I imagine a lot of people just participate and maybe not necessarily tell you their whole background politically. But um, have you had anyone say, you know, I'm a Trump supporter and I'm going to participate? I have not, but I would like to. Yeah, I think it's great that it's important to point out that this is not something that is just for those who are not thrilled with his, you know, if if you're inspired by his Twitter posts or Twitter feed, there's room for those folks in your project, it sounds like. Absolutely. I don't, I've had people walk into a couple of times, not, not a lot, but I've had people walk into the exhibits and they've come with someone else and they're actually a Trump supporter, but the person they're with is not. And it'll come out that they feel more positive about his presidency than than the person they've come with who's dragged them there. Mm-hmm. Um, and they will always, you know, have a conver- we can have a conversation because, again, we're looking at the words on the wall. Um, I've had one, I guess there was one person who visited the exhibit on Bleecker Street at Lingua Franca and was a Trump supporter, but I think she didn't spend enough time in the space to really look at each piece. And once you start looking at the pieces, you can see that there is a, you know, they have been done in a certain way that might imply a certain political preference. Um, But if you didn't know that and you curated in a certain way, you could walk in and see a quote and think, oh, yeah, exactly. That's exactly how I feel. Thank God someone stitched it. (laughs) Can I buy it and put it on my wall? Right. I think that could happen, um, and I think that would be interesting. Uh, I would love to have someone who supports um, his, you know, uh, to take two different people with different ideas about the meaning of what he's saying and to have them both stitch it and see how different those pieces look. And do your feelings about what he said change as you stitch them? I've certainly had people who are Trump supporters look through the project and they usually say to me, well, you know, I don't agree with what he says. Um, I haven't had a lot of people look at the project and defend his words. They support his actions. They're, they're tolerating his words, but they don't really pay a lot of attention to them. How do you feel when you look at the collection as it grows every day? I feel very inspired, and I feel very humbled. I don't, um, I, I don't know if I feel... Proud. I, I feel very lucky that um, I found that I, first. I found this way of participating in the political dialogue, and I feel very lucky that so many people, um, even in the very beginning when there were you know, ten pieces, twenty pieces, thirty pieces, from all different backgrounds, have said, "You know, this is a great idea. I want to participate." or donate textiles, or I'll tell my friend who's a journalist, or I'll tell this person, and, you know, they should really see it. And I think I, I feel, you know, it is an emotional experience, but instead of being completely overwhelming, when I focus on the individual pieces, it's very calming, because generally I know something about that person, and I can go to their story, and I can say, this is the person who shared this bit of information with me about their you know, aunt whose handkerchief they used or their father who worked for the IRS and and they've stitched a quote under the collar of a shirt and added a tie to it. I can go to those specific details of the participants and then I don't feel overwhelmed. I just feel very lucky. 
And it is rather amazing to see the different ways people have come at this project. Because when you look at your Instagram feed, it's just really beautiful, the collection. And um, so I do encourage people to go check that out. And I'll, I'll post a link to it. And you have quite the following now, too. When you started, how many followers did you have initially when you started? Probably three or four hundred. Yeah, and you're <laughs> over 12,000. Like yeah. It seemed like a lot of time. And it's really because people have shared it. And when, when you post a piece, um, that person has all of their friends and their community. So it brings together... It just it's it's like a you know dropping a pebble in, in the water. I mean the ripples are extraordinary, and I really love it when people post and share, and I get to read about the piece or or how they feel about the project. <laughs> um, the only thing I get tired of is myself <laughs> this process because and and luckily there's so many other people participating because I can only change so much how I view the situation and how I feel about what Donald Trump says, but I really appreciate hearing how other people feel. So that when I say that they're sort of fault, they're not, I feel not so much that people are following me, but they're following the project and they're following every single person who commits to making a piece. And for that second, they're witnessing and observing that person and what they've made by hand. And one of the amazing Parts of this project is that every piece is donated to the collection, and uh, in some cases, you make a piece of art and then it's given back to you at the end of the show, and that is not the case with this project. Now, some people are very happy to release their tiny prick, and they they weren't going to put it up on their wall at home, but everyone has put time into the pieces that they've made, and that's time that they could have spent doing something else, but they've decided to do and then to give away the the outcome of that time. And that's a very generous gift. And what would you like to see happen to this collection once it's, uh, who knows how long it will go on. That's to be continued at this point. But what would you like to see happen to the collection? So the collection, the project officially ends when Trump is out of office. Uh, and I said that really when it seemed like he could not be reelected. <laughs> I didn't say that thinking that he could or would be reelected, and now I'm not sure. But what I would love to see happen is I would love to have an exhibit in a major museum. Um, I would love to see the project have a huge amount of space and to see how it could be exhibited uh, as an infographic. In other words, how how you would arrange the pieces because they do form a narrative. And depending on how you position them and curate them, you can read many different stories of this presidency. So if they were all positioned on the wall, more or less at eye level, and you could read them chronologically, that would be different than starting, than clumping them you know, in terms of issue and policy. So what I would really love in, in you know, a couple of years or however, whenever the collection is at a critical mass is to have the space to exhibit it so that the movement through the exhibit was part of the meaning. The last two exhibits have been, um, the meaning has been to be in it and to be you know, essentially inside this escape room methodology. But you can't read every single piece in that situation because they're floor to ceiling. 
and and at this point, the collection is getting to be very big. And the last two spaces, both the space in San Francisco and the space now in New York, uh, can't accommodate the number of pieces. Uh, I would also love for it to travel in chapters. So 200 tiny pricks could go to a certain event in this part of the country and another 200 to another place because they'll never be attached like a quilt. They'll always be individual pieces. I would love to have someone else curate them just to see how somebody else would arrange them. And present that because, yeah, there's unlimited ways you could do that. And how many pieces are you at right now? I know it's July 9th today. What's your count? sheet of stickers in front of me and the next sticker is 860. Wow. But I know that there are some waiting for me in British Columbia and I know that there are maybe a hundred out there. People always send me, take a photo and send me an email and say, here's my piece. So I know that there are a lot out there and I can't, I have no idea how many, I know there are more and more. It's growing rapidly, but I don't know um, if I'll reach the goal of the goal is to have uh, 2020 by 2020. I do have a, a question about the name of your project. Did that the title come to you very quickly when you're trying it to did. decide? What <laughs> Perhaps a little too quickly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there was a time when I was trying to distance myself from it. Um, there's been some I've talked to different publishers, and there's a question about whether or not the title could be um, yeah, the book could be confused with something else. I did have a couple wander into the show in San Francisco. Um, late in the afternoon, uh, the exhibit was at the Mule Gallery in North Beach, which is near a lot of different um, strip clubs. And they oh. wandered in and they were like, wait, we thought this was something totally different. And I was much more curious about what they thought it was than they were about what it actually was. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, you're like, well, this is going to enrich your life in a different way. Have a look around. Um, so the title... You know, I, I, for me, honestly, and I don't know if anyone believes me, but I just think about pricking your conscience, and I think about the stitching. I'm, I'm less enthusiastic about the, you know, a potential reference to someone's anatomy, but uh, it really is this process. It really is each of these words that he says feels like a tiny prick, and the question is, does that awaken you or numb you or? You know what? What does it do to you? Because it's coming at you in this way um, that is repetitive and 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 sharp. I'd like to talk a little bit about what you did before this project started, so people have a little bit of they can know a little bit more about you and the other work that you do. Yeah, so I started stitching about five or six years ago. I took a course called Art and the Language of Craft at Vancouver Island School of Art, and I had an amazing teacher, Danielle Hogan, and um, she introduced me to different um, textile-based art- artists who were stitching. And I found myself in a situation where I didn't have time to make art um, the way I had hoped. I have four children, and so I was driving around a lot and doing a lot of different things, and it was not convenient to carry a canvas and paints and brushes around with me, but it was very easy to put a piece of textile in a Ziploc bag and a hoop and thread and sit by a squash court and stitch. I also at the same time inherited a bunch of textile from my maternal grandparents who had passed away. 
and they skipped a generation. My mother was not interested in them, and my teenage daughters were definitely not interested in <laughs> having those boxes of old textile passed on to them. And yet I loved them, and I felt responsible for them, and I didn't know what to do with them. So one of the first series I created was based on my childhood in the wilderness, and I stitched the photographs into christening gowns, uh, textiles from my maternal grandparents. I also did a series of 11 fabric pages based on John McPhee's writing in The New Yorker on the craft of writing, and he was one of my writing teachers in college. So I circled back using this medium to the things, to my own personal history and to the things that have influenced the way I think and process information and stories. And I started making those pieces, and I haven't stopped. (laughs) It was a bit of a rabbit hole that I fell into, but I was very lucky early into the practice to attend as an artist a peace-building conference with Build Peace in Nicosia, Cyprus, in the last divided capital city, and I did this project, a sort of stitching tapestry project in the on the Greek Cypriot side and the Turkish Cypriot, and then in the UN buffer zone. And so I was very lucky early into this practice to have incredible places and communities to work in, and that really informed this practice. So I go back and forth between very personal pieces and series, which I also have on Instagram at Diana Weimar. And at one point, if you can believe it, uh, until not that long ago, I was both posting my work, so whether it's a piece based on my childhood or I do a lot of, I do other series based on humanitarian crises and photographs from the New York Times and NPR, and I stitch those photographs into the same kind of textile that's used for tiny pricks. And I was putting, I was just putting all of this out there as one thing. And it wasn't until I uh, really tiny pricks started to take off that I started to see and others shared with me, you know, the need for tiny pricks to have its own space and its own feed. Because I was sometimes posting quotes, you know, inspirational quotes by, you know, Mother Teresa, we've all forgotten that we belong to each other, next to a tiny prick. (laughs) (laughs) For a second, they'd be confused because... We do go to Tiny Pricks now, and I do as well, looking for a Tiny Prick. Right, not not Mother Teresa or MLK. Yeah, not John McBee, not Rumi, not not someone else. And it's a dark place to some degree, but we do go there knowing that those are the pieces we're going to find. So if we don't want to read what he said on Twitter, we can read a a Tiny Prick. And there are people who tell me that... They've stopped following him, but they follow the series, and that's their way, which is a tremendous sense of responsibility, I feel. But I do remind people, it is art. I'm not a journalist. I, you know, I have to be very careful about that. I'm, I'm definitely not a journalist, but I am, so in a sense, I feel responsibility, but I don't have control over what other people do, and I certainly I check if a quote doesn't sound familiar to me. I will check it. Um, only once has someone made a piece, and then we discovered together that it was from a sort of satire feed, and it wasn't uh, a real quote, but it yeah. sounded just like a quote. <laughs> yeah. So, 
That's happened once. So it sounds um, like you are checking, though. So for those who are out there wondering, so what do you? What's your process? Do you just Google it, or I go- Google it and I check the source um, to make sure. But I'm. But it's conceivable that a piece could certainly it could get by me. Um, there's so many now. So I'm. I'm. You know, art first. And and if it is how you follow the news, I would always encourage people to look for more context. So did I hear you correctly when you said you just started stitching five years ago? Yeah, but that's about right. That's pretty um, incredible. You're getting some big shows and a lot of attention. That's wonderful. Did you do uh, other forms of art early on? Did you study art in college or what was what is your... I did not. I studied creative writing in college. Okay. Um, I Then I worked in film and I have taken art courses, though not a degree, uh, both in New York, Princeton, and on Vancouver Island. So, And I also grew up making things. So I grew up uh, in the wilderness, and so we were living off the grid, and most things, including, you know, the dog sled and the log cabin we lived in and the boat we took on the river, were all made by hand. And so I think of all of the different experiences I've had, that one really, um, there's, a, there's a personal nostalgia to making things. I, did, I didn't have plastic toys, you know, I didn't have, everything was handmade, and, and my parents made gifts for me, um, we made things for each other, so uh, that's a very big part of this project for me. And I, in terms of, you know, having big shows and, and being able to share the work, a lot of that is, is because other people have picked it up and they have said, you know, I know what to do with it, like Rochelle has at Lingua Franca. I, I know, I see what you're doing and I know what to do with it because it, this isn't a really clear project um, to some degree. Like, how would you exhibit? Nothing's for sale. Um, and a lot of galleries need to sell work, understandably. So how do you share this? And I think because of social media, it's been able to um, get attention and people said, okay, I see what it is. I see that people like it. I'd love to bring it. Will you come here and will you show it? It also is happening right now. So I can't wait two years or three years for a show somewhere. And it's also changing. The number of pieces is in flux. So when the show went up in New York, I didn't have enough pieces for a second show. Right now I could have two shows. Wow. It's constantly changing and I'm constant, how I'm approaching it is is often a reaction to how other people are reacting to it. And I've been lucky enough to find a lot of different people who have been willing to um, support it and approach the people that they know in the arts community. Uh, It is, I, I don't know what it, if it's, like this in all mediums, but stitchers and textile artists and embroidery artists and fabric artists, they're unbelievably generous. I have had a lot of support early from accounts like Badass Cross Stitch, Subversive Stitching. Um, They never ask, do you have a lot of experience stitching? Why are you, you know, you never ask for your credentials. They just see what you're doing and they're like, yes, I'm going to support and share. I love the fact that you're encouraging people on a grand scale to do the same. So I commend you for that. And um, the best way for people to find uh, updates about your shows would be your website, I'm assuming. 
My website, uh, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Um, I don't do a newsletter. I haven't done one yet. Um, but just follow it. I, I put all the information um, on my website. And I'm also very interested in ideas that people have about exhibiting the project and um, opening chapters of their own. Um, I've had a lot of people contact me from the UK and want to do a sort of tiny pricks version uh, of Brexit. So it's wide open, and and that's really the that is at the core of the methodology is that um, anyone can join and find a way to organize a community around it. Well, I think that's a wonderful place to end unless you have anything else that you'd like to add that I didn't ask you. Well, you asked me about my age and I, there was something. And our sound check. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. As, as uh, turning 50 is that, you know, a thing or two and you know, that's all you need to know. For example, I know that stitching something makes, you know, is a good feeling. And it's interesting as you get older that it's just not that complicated. <laughs> you know, this, this project is not, it, it's a very simple way of addressing something very complicated. And I think that's sort of a wisdom, wisdom that comes with age. So I certainly wouldn't have done this project in my early 20s. Yeah, and I think that's the most beautiful thing about aging is that we just yeah. get comfortable. We know ourselves. We know what works. Yeah. And so those of you who are in your 20s, (laughs) stay strong, ladies, because it's going to get so much better. Um, And it's really, you might not be able to run as fast, but you're just going to be, you're going to have knowledge. And that is so wonderful. Great to talk to you. Yeah, it was great to talk to you as well. A special thanks to Diana for being on the show. I really appreciated our conversation. And I really want to encourage you all to go check out the Tiny Pricks Instagram feed where you can see all the embroideries that have been submitted. And she's adding pictures every day. So take a look there. If you live near New York or you're heading there before September 3rd, go check it out. Uh, I think it'd be a great exhibit to see. I don't think I'm going to make it to the West Village before uh, September. So I don't think I'm going to get to see it in person, but the photos are pretty cool. So you can check it out there. And again, you can follow the Instagram feed to keep up on all the latest submissions. And if you're really into it, you can find out more at craftsanity.com. I have a link to all of Diana's social media and the links to where you can get involved and all that good stuff. So I hope you check those out. A special thanks to my Patreon sponsors for helping to keep the show going and everybody else who has been a longtime supporter. I really appreciate it, you guys. Feel free to send me an email if you have a show guest suggestion. I'd love to hear it. I will be back soon with another episode of the podcast. In the meantime, Craft Sanity, my friends, it works for me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Craft Sanity podcast. To support the show, click the Patreon link at craftsanity.com to donate $1 a month or buy a handmade loom or magazine at craftsandy.etsy.com. Same time.